Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 34. Those of you following me on social media know that I've been undergoing chemotherapy and then radiation to treat breast cancer. Thankfully, it's going well, meaning that there's really no evidence of cancer at this time and the chemo worked. Thank you for those of you who've reached out to send me well wishes. It really helps lift my spirits. While going through these treatments, some of my closest colleagues, who are also friends, have volunteered to guest host the podcast. In this episode, Kelly Farquharson speaks with current ASHA president, Lynn Williams, about her research on assessment and treatment of pediatric speech sound disorders and her experience so far as ASHA president. I'm thankful to Kelly and Lynn for taking the time to share with See, Hear, Speak listeners. Speaking of listeners, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our website, www.seeherspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. And if you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Welcome to episode 34 of See, Hear, Speak podcast. My name is Kelly Farquharson and I am your guest host today. I'm so excited to be here and I'm even more excited to be chatting with our guest today, Dr. Lynn Williams. And Lynn, I'm just gonna have you start by introducing yourself. Okay, well, thank you, Kelly, so much for having me. Um, well, as you said, I'm Lynn Williams. I am uh, the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs in the College of Clinical and Rehabilitative Health Sciences here at East Tennessee State University in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains. And uh, I'm also the 2021 ASHA president and um, a big fan and longtime colleague of yours. That's right. I was thinking about in preparation for our conversation today, uh, when we first met, um, which was when I was in living, I was living in Pennsylvania and was a school-based speech-language pathologist, and you came to speak, I think, at our state association, PISHA, yes. Yes. and um, I had been a longtime fan of your work and found um, a lot of what we're going to talk about today with respect to your assessment um, practices and your treatment and the, the app that you have developed, um, I found it revolutionary to my clinical practice. And so I was just so Great. excited to meet you. And I even asked, I don't know if you remember this, but I asked you to sign um, a copy of your book that I had. <laughs> no, I don't remember that. But interestingly, I do remember us going out to eat. Mm -hmm. um, and I think about that from time to time. So we've, we've had a long history with each other. Yeah, we have. Because I guess that was probably 2006, maybe? Seven? Or, yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. No later than that, I don't Yeah, because it was before I went back for my PhD, which was right. 2009. Yeah. Right. Um, and for those who don't know, um, when I went back for my PhD, um, I studied with Tiffany Hogan. So Tiffany, who is the host of this podcast, um, is um, currently battling breast cancer, as many of her listeners know, and has given me this wonderful opportunity to guest host. And so I'm really excited to be here. And this is a, an awesome platform for um, us to talk a little bit about phonology, Lynn. So you and I are going to dig into uh, some of our shared love of speech sound disorders. And um, we're also going to get to hear a little bit about your experience as ASHA president. So I'm, I'm so excited and thrilled that you were able to make some time for this today. I know there's a lot on your plate 
great. And um, I know the listeners are just going to love getting a chance to hear from the ASHA president. So, well, thank you so much. And, <laughs> and I, I want to say it's an honor for me to be on this podcast. I am um, a huge fan of Tiffany's as well and wish her all the best in her treatment and recovery. Here, here. I agree. Well, Tiffany also has a love of speech sound disorders and phonology, so I think we'll do a, a good honor for her of having this conversation today. Um, but, you know, I think, Lynn, you and I, uh, we share this love of phonology and this real interest in how children produce speech sounds and, and really digging into this kind of puzzle piece that often mm -hmm. children or, or puzzle that children present with, you know, that there's so many differences in the types of speech sound errors that children make. There's so much variability in what we see. And um, although there tend to be some patterns within their speech sound errors, a lot of times it's our job to find that. It's not really mm -hmm. just an obvious pattern. Um, so I think I'll start there with this idea of variability and the different profiles that we see. Um, and as a result of those different profiles and the different patterns that we may see in speech sound errors, you developed and have been very actively researching a treatment approach called multiple oppositions. And so I thought it might be fun to just kind of start by telling the listeners who may not be familiar um, what multiple oppositions is and how you found it and how you've, you know, kind of propelled that work forward. Oh, great. I, I'm really happy to talk about that uh, because multiple oppositions really represents a paradigm shift in how we view speech sound disorders in children. So we're looking at it from a systemic perspective, not uh, an error perspective and not even a pattern perspective. You know, so like phonological processes or phonological patterns are looking at the relationship among errors in terms of these patterns like final consonant deletion, fronting, stopping, etc. But uh, multiple oppositions represents a systemic perspective where you're looking not just at the relationship of um, errored sounds, but you're looking at how has the child organized their sound system? So, you know, we, we've heard parents say for years that it's just like they have a language of their own. And that's exactly yeah. what it is. And, and that's what makes it so exciting to me is, you know, to, to find out what that language is, to describe it just like we would describe natural languages of the world. I love thinking about it that way because I think it really does help us um, reframe mm -hmm. what the child is maybe doing. And I think I love that focus on thinking of it as a language of their own because in that way, um, although we do are, we are often still comparing it to maybe an adult target, but mm -hmm. that allows us to really dig into this child's speech sound system. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the listeners for this podcast, you know, have varied backgrounds. And although there are a lot of them who are speech language pathologists, um, there are even more who are um, educators in varieties of ways. And so they may be completely unfamiliar with um, treating a speech sound disorder or thinking about a speech sound disorder. So I think this conversation is going to be maybe really interesting for, for that population of listeners as well. Um, and so I'm kind of uh, selfishly curious of, you know, in your career, just kind of thinking about your trajectory, at what point did you kind of 
come across this um, viewpoint of thinking about speech sound production as systemic and thinking about it from mm -hmm. that perspective like what was the did you have like a light bulb moment or what was yeah kind of that's the, it um, that's exactly that's exactly the way it happened so I, I remember it exactly I was supervising a graduate clinician and this was when I was at Cal State Fullerton and she was working with this child who had a really unusual error pattern this child substituted L for W which oh. is just the opposite of what you would expect, you yeah. know, because usually you'd see W for L and that'd be gliding. Mm -hmm. um, but she also had idiosyncratic errors of L for S and mm -hmm. L for S, SH. Interesting. So, uh, you know, we, we were using um, the minimal pairs approach and targeting these idiosyncratic errors. So we'd have sets of minimal pairs of L versus W and we'd contrast words like Lee, we, lay, way. And then we'd put those away and we'd get out the next set of minimal pairs, L versus S, like Lee, see, lay, say. And then we put those away and we'd get out the third set of minimal pairs, L versus SH, and work on Lee, she, lay, shay. And uh, what we found, we, you know, the clinician would graph the data. And I, I remember reviewing this at home on a weekend. And we had the graph from when the child started therapy in September, and now it's November. And this child had made little to no progress on any of these goals. Wow. You know, so the clinician was getting discouraged. The child was getting uh, frustrated. And it was at that point that I started um, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. All of these idiosyncratic errors were related that you know the child was doing the same thing, doing L. Yeah. And um, so the next logical question was why? And that's when I started to diagram phoneme collapses and look at children's sound systems, um, their disordered sound systems systemically. Um, and this you know pulls on work of others like uh, Pam Grunwell, who was a linguist, yeah. and and she um, I think it's back in 1982 talked about one of the characteristics of a phonological disability is that there's a phonetic resemblance between the child's error productions and the adult target. Yeah. So when I looked at that phoneme collapse of W, S, and SH that the child produced as L, I looked for the phonetic resemblance first across those adult targets, W, S, and S, and um, and, and they, you know, they're, they're different places, they're different manner, they're different voicing. But one thing that was similar is that they were all continuance. Oh, and yes. then when I looked at what the child's error was, L, it's also a continuum. Yeah. And um, so voila, you know, it just all came together. And so we, we decided instead of these three separate um, sets of minimal pairs, let's Let's train across that rule, across that phoneme collapse, because wow. that seems to be the way this child has her system ordered systemically rather than by these idiosyncratic patterns that we overlaid on her system. Yeah. And, and so we had these larger treatment sets of, you know, like Lee, we, see, she, lay, way, say, she. Yeah. And, and that first treatment 
uh, session, she got 92% accuracy. Whoa. Which would seem to indicate there's some validity to looking at this systemic system and then designing intervention to restructure that sound system. So, you know, when you were talking about, well, we still compare it to the adult, that's like we do with second language learners, right? Mm-hmm. So we say, here's your language, mm-hmm. here are the rules of your language. And then as you're learning English as a second language, there's some of this transference or, you know, there's some relationship here. Well, that's what we do. First of all, we describe what are you doing in your system without overlaying our predetermined rules, right? Yes. And yes. then say, now, how does your system line up with um, English, with the adult sound system? And, and then it's just so amazing that we see these young children who've never had a class in phonetics, never had a class in linguistics, are coming up with these sophisticated sound systems that are logical, that are predictable, that are governed by the linguistic universals that govern all languages. So like I said, this is a paradigm shift to look at it systemically. And it moves us from a deficit perspective to a strengths perspective, you know, instead of the glasses half full, I mean, half empty, we're looking, saying it's half full. And, um, and then, you know, these kids, we are going to treat them differently. And, you know, how clever you are that you came up with this. Yes. And, and when we talk to parents, you know, they've been hearing, oh, they can't do this. They can't do that. They can't do this. And all of a sudden it's like, how clever your child is that they came up with this sound system. My graduate students would be hard pressed to come up with this. Um, So I I just love that. And I have expanded (laughs) that systemic perspective into a coherent theoretical framework that encompasses the analysis. So, you know, that looking at the phoneme collapse uh, systemically and then target selection using a distance metric approach and then the intervention. So it's interesting, the intervention came first and then the um, analysis and then the target selection, but it all originated from this puzzle of this kid who had this very unusual error pattern. That is so fascinating. And I think it's also really, I love the strengths-based approach because I've really been thinking a lot about um, different theoretical frameworks that we should be maybe considering when we're thinking about, you know, determining eligibility for kids, particularly those with speech sound disorders. And um, recently I got a chance to write a paper on uh, the use of design thinking Mm -hmm. as a theoretical framework for determining eligibility. And what I love about design thinking is that it's human-centered. It puts the child Mm -hmm. or the person, right? But the child at the center of the decision-making process. And you're always coming back to what is good for this child? What is good for this little person, right? Right. And I think that's such an important... it, it shouldn't be a paradigm shift, but right now it feels a little bit like it might, we might need one to right. shift back, shift our attention back to the child. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of focus on the errors that the child makes. Um, you know, speech sound norms is, is, is a, a topic that I could probably dig into for, yes. uh, for a while, just um, thinking about, you know, when speech sounds develop and, and the relevance of considering 
that normative data in our in our structure, there's a lot of focus on well, what age and well, what sound and well, what's mm -hmm. the error? What does this mean? What's the pattern? As opposed to this little person, let's focus on the person and think about that so that you're 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 thinking here about like the strengths-based approach mm -hmm. is in line with that. And I just really love that um, reconceptualization of how we can analyze and treat children who have these really complex speech sound errors, right? So right. They, they present with these disorders that we often want to boil down to, you know, they're gliding, they're stopping, mm -hmm. they're mm -hmm. W for R, they're distorting, they have a lateral lisp, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, but it's so much more than that. And most importantly, it's a person. And right. so, you know, we need to be, you know, keeping that at the center of our decision making process when we're trying to determine, you know, what's what is happening here. I also love that you have that story from supervising a graduate student and yes. this, you know, that what a pivotal moment that at the time maybe didn't feel like it. But I mean, think about everything you've done now and, and all that your career has has led to as a result of that one child, that one experience. Right. Right. I mean, it was that aha moment that became the foundation of my NIH funded research. It, it led to becoming a linguistic detective to discover yes. the order and the disorder of these children's sound systems. Yep. And, and, and then it's made my work with these children so interesting and amazing as we discover new languages yeah. every time we see these children. Yes. It's just so fascinating. And um, so I think relevant to all of this is um, another important product that I love that has come out of this line of thinking for you, um, which is your app. So sound mm -hmm. contrasts and phonology. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of SKIP. <laughs> so sound contrast and phonology, the acronym is SKIP. And we will put a link to, um, to the app and some information about it on the See, Hear, Speak podcast website. Um, but I, I had an original version of the SKIP CD-ROM. Yes, yes. And um, so I've been using it for a long time. And um, I've recently been able to upgrade to the app, thankfully. So, um, you know, that's, that's really, it's wonderful to see the progression. But I'm hoping you can kind of share a little bit about Skip. Um, you know, it's, it's clear where, where it came from through this uh -huh. line of thinking here of this, you know, this exact example uh -huh. that you're sharing. But how did you come up with the idea to develop um, a computerized system for treatment? And then can you tell us also maybe first a little bit about the program? Right, right. Well, let me, let me just um, start with, I've always viewed myself as a uh, scientific clinician and a clinical scientist. So everything originates from that. And as, as uh, I was getting the data off of uh, this multiple oppositions approach and seeing that it was robust, um, there seemed to be validity and designing treatment that um, looked at restructuring a child's sound system. I, I would tell my students, well, there's some good news and bad news. The good news is this is an approach that uh, seems to be fairly robust and um, efficacious. The bad news is it's going to take so long to develop the treatment materials, you'll never have time to implement it. And um, so I, I, I have a very good friend, Ron Gillum. Ron and I were in doctoral school together at oh. Indiana University. And he was actually visiting me in Tennessee and was talking to me about this translational research uh, funding mechanism through NIH 
the SBIR grant yep. um, to translate research into clinical application. And he said, you know, I think that you should you should consider this because I was telling him there's got to be some way that we can utilize technology where I just plug in, you know, uh, here's the child's error, here are the targets and a good boom and, <laughs> and it gives you what that is. And, and so the, um, the idea to apply for this uh, SBAR grant through NIH came from him uh, because there, there were no commercial materials for this, right. you had to make right. them yep. yourself. And um, and then with the other contrastive approaches like minimal pairs, there's lots of materials, but they were limited to like the nine common phonological patterns like mm -hmm. fronting, stopping, gliding, etc. So if you had a child like this one who had this idiosyncratic error and you wanted to contrast L versus S, you didn't have commercial sure, materials yeah. for that either. And then um, the other newer extensions off of the contrastive approach that Judy Garrett developed, um, maximal oppositions mm -hmm. and, and treatment of the empty set, just like um, multiple oppositions, there were no materials available. Right. So I didn't want to just do it for multiple oppositions. I wanted to give clinicians options. And, and as a clinician at heart, I like having options that there's not just one way to do it all the time or yeah. one way to do it all the time with one client. So that was the, the impetus behind that. Oh, that's fascinating. And I didn't realize that you and Ron Gillum were in graduate school together. Yes. yes. Oh, that's so great. I love seeing those relationships. You know, that's that's fascinating. Well, you know, just like you were talking about, you were Tiffany's doc student. It's, yeah. it's really interesting to kind of look at the genealogy of uh, the people in our field. Isn't yeah, all, yes. all the connections. Yes, it's true. And and we have a uh, uh, Tiffany is big on her academic family tree. So she was trained yeah. by Hugh Katz, who's uh -huh. now my department chair. Um, so oh, it's like goodness. our our little academic family is just it's so great. So. Uh -huh. Um, but I, I wanted to also give a shout out about skip. Um, so this is a um, now an app that's available through Apple. And it is such a wonderful clinical tool. Um, and so if you're unfamiliar with Skip, if you're a listener and you're unfamiliar with Skip or or maybe even just unfamiliar with speech sound treatment in general, this is an app that um, has, it pulls from a, a huge database, which maybe you can tell us a little bit more mm -hmm. about that, Lynn, but it pulls from a huge database of words um, based on the child's speech sound um, their phoneme collapse. So, mm -hmm. so thinking about multiple oppositions, we typically have one sound that a child is using to replace multiple other sounds. And so in, in your example, Lynn, where you said the child was producing L instead of um, in place of W and S and SH or S. Right. Um, and so we have that happen quite a bit where we have a child who collapses a sound to one particular sound. Mm -hmm. And my, my favorite example is when I was doing early intervention and I had a child who um, collapsed almost everything to D. Um, mm -hmm. uh, many things were collapsed to D, not everything, but, you know, because he had his linguistic rules that he was following, right. you know. Um, and so I had printed out um, materials from Skip uh -huh. to work with this kid in early intervention. And so what I love about Skip is you can um, tailor your intervention and your materials to the exact kinds of errors that the child is making. So if a child is producing 
L in place of W and S and SH, then you tell Skip, here's the, the um, error sound that the child is making, and here are the target sounds that we want to work on, so W and S and SH, and it just generates a list of words and then you can go through and select how many you want to target so if you only want to target five sets of words mm -hmm. so that would be you know each set is going to have four words because it's going to mm -hmm. have the error and then a, one word to represent each target sound so in that example there would be four total words and then um Maybe you want to have five sets, maybe you want to have 10 sets. Um, maybe you want to work on real words only. So you want it to select um, targets that are only actual real words. And then there's images that come with those real words. Or maybe you're okay with some of the words being non-words and mm -hmm. depending on your your target sounds, you may not have a choice um, because some right. there are so, only so many sets that can be all real words. But like you can th. exactly that was exactly what I was thinking. That sometimes with th, you're limited on. There's just only so many words that start with that sound, and so if mm -hmm. you have if you want ten sets to contrast four different targets, then you're right. you may be limited. But there's going to be at least a non-word representation with an image. Um, and then you can also select the vowel context. And I love right. that aspect of it so much that you can, you know, we know how much vowels contribute in co-articulation to how phonemes are produced. So you can decide what kind of vowels you want to be included. Mm -hmm. um, and then once you run the program, it shows the child the pictures and you're asking them to contrast their target, uh, their error sound, which would be L in the example of the mm -hmm. child we've been talking about to W and S and SH. And then it, it takes data for you and it graphs data for you. And it, it is just such a fascinating concept that I have used so many times. And now I, I show it in my um, speech sound disorders graduate course because it's my favorite clinical tool. It's my favorite therapy tool. And I, I'm not, I tend to not be one who is, um, you know, this is the one thing that will work right. for everybody, but I really feel like skip is the thing. I think it's the thing that will work for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do have the options. And, um, and, and like I said, I, I like having options for clinicians. So as you said, you can choose um, real words or nonsense words. And, and some approaches like the complexity approach wants you to use nonsense words. Right. So you can plug in there. I only want nonsense words yep. and all of your contrastive word sets will be nonsense. Uh, you, you can also um, choose to have the illustrations or photographs. And it's really interesting. We did a little survey to find out what do clinicians prefer. And it was about 50-50. So I oh, myself prefer um, illustrations, but mm -hmm. there were about half of the SLPs who prefer photographs. So we have photographs of each one. We also have the option that you can print out these uh, contrasts if you want to work away from the app. Uh -huh. and, um, and, and I think there's some benefit to that, like early on in therapy where you might need the child to be attending to your cues, your visual cues uh -huh. um, to print them out. And then we have the option well, you can print them out in color or you can print them out in black and white. Yeah. Um, and so you can use it for those four different uh, contrastive approaches, but you also have the option, if you wanna work on vowel errors, you can do contrast with vowels like um, bin and bean, mm -hmm. for instance, where you're contrasting the vowel. Um, and then, so, you know, it's anything contrast. So 
any of the four contrastive approaches plus vowel contrast. But let's say you just you want to just have access to this large database that you're saying. Like there are over two thousand real words. There are over six thousand oh, wow. nonsense words. Um, so you can go to the listing of all of the words, and you can do it alphabetically. You can select by what target sound initial position or final position, and then you can um, print out those cards. So if you're doing cycles, you could use them for cycles. If you're yep. doing artic therapy, you can use it for that. Or if you want to use them in developing a probe list of individual words, you oh, can yeah. do that. Yeah. So there's lots of flexibility there. I just had a meeting um, about two weeks ago with the, um, the designer who converted it from the CD-ROM to an app. Uh -huh. And I want to tell you, you'll be the first one to hear this. We are adding complex targets. Oh, so wow. we're going to have the um, three consonant clusters. And we're hoping to have that database uh, updated and it's it's more complex than I can understand because you've got to be able to you know the program has to be able to link that target with all these other targets sure. in rhyming words yeah. but we hope to have this in place by uh, November for the ASHA convention. Oh, fabulous. Well, that is uh, uh, also a benefit of being a listener to See, Here Speak podcast is getting access <laughs> to that kind of information uh, hot off the press. So, wow, that's so exciting. That's yeah. really great to hear. Um, well, you know, so related to that, when you're thinking about um, um, you mentioned the complex targets, you mentioned the complexity approach. I kind of want to transition into thinking about mm -hmm. the taxonomy work that you did with yes. some of your colleagues in 2018. So um, I know that this must have, this must represent, you know, years of work, but um, I will make sure that the 2018 paper is posted to the See, Here Speak podcast resources. Um, but I'm thinking about the taxonomy paper, Lynn, in which you and um, Rebecca McCauley and Elise Baker, sharing the cloud, the cloud. Yes. Um, and this paper is such a fascinating read especially if you are a phonologist or someone who's interested in varying treatment approaches really to anything so you guys really went through and you know you were mentioning earlier that in the complexity approach you know requires that you use non-words mm -hmm. in that treatment and so as a part of this taxonomy you and your colleagues have categorized the different components of treatment approaches for speech sound disorders and have have really considered all of those different what may seem like minor details that really actually together form these different approaches so whether you use real words or non-words whether mm -hmm. you use a contrast or or not um so i'm really interested in hearing a little bit more about how the taxonomy paper came to be um how you guys decided i'm, I'm guessing it in part it also has to do with your textbook and right. you know all the work that you did there um, but could you like walk us through a little bit how yeah. you came to do that work right well um i'm going to go back a little bit and you know in the 90s and 2000s there was this great proliferation of intervention approaches it's like you know we've had um, articulation, and we had minimal pairs, and we had cycles. Um, but, but then in the 90s and the 2000s, it, there was just this great expansion of intervention approaches. And the focus was on defining on how each approach was unique or different from all the others. Um, and in 2008, I believe it was, I was a member of an invited panel 
on intervention at the ASHA convention. So Barbara Hodson was there to talk about cycles. Barbara Dobb was there to talk about core vocabulary. Edie Strand was there to talk about DTTC. And I was there to talk about multiple oppositions. And we went in alphabetical order. And with my name being Williams, I was the last to talk. And I was sitting there taking copious notes as each of the other speakers were presenting and started noticing a lot of overlap among these approaches. So I started changing my talk to acknowledge the similarities on how um, speech sound disorders exist on this phonetic phonemic continuum yeah. um, and that intervention involves this duality of learning. So a lot of the things that Edie Strand was talking about and her DTTC approach was very motoric. It's for childhood apraxia of speech. I was doing in multiple oppositions, oh, wow. like the visual learning, the visual cues, um, the, um, the physical prompts, the um, exaggerated movements. I mean, so I thought, you know, we got to think about this in a different way. And it was at that same time that I was working with Sharon McLeod and Rebecca McCauley to edit this book on interventions on speech sound disorders. Um, and so we had this very prescribed template that we asked the authors to write about. And each of them had a section where they would write about their goals and they would write about what are the key components of that intervention approach. So um, I, was, I, was, uh, I was in New Zealand as an Erskine fellow in 2011 and um, teaching there for the semester and Sharon and Elise invited me up to Australia, which was just a couple hour flight from, from New Zealand. And we spent a weekend just mapping out this idea that let's start looking under the hood of these interventions and seeing how are they similar? How are they different? And, um, and because we had this, this um, prescribed template that the authors in the book used, it gave us this, this common ground to make that comparison. So we chose 15 interventions um, and we copied that text and you know we had the Word documents for each of those files. So we copied the, those sections from the chapter on the key components and, um, and then we, we brought Rebecca in on this and um, Sharon, Elise, and I uh, divided those 15 interventions. Each of us took five. And we broke those, those, um, the, the information down into meaning statements. So we did this content analysis wow. to identify the meaning statements in each of these 15 approaches. Well, then... Um, we brought Rebecca into this. Uh, it was right before an ASHA convention. So I think that this was, this was right after um, I was there in New Zealand. So it was in November of 2011. And we rented a house right on, the, on the, um, the beach there and worked on this. So uh, Sharon, Elise, and I all brought our little meaning statements, which we had cut into little strips of paper that we had identified this as a meaning statement. We had over 1,200 meaning statements. And then Rebecca 
was able to help us look at this from the broader perspective because we have been so narrowly focused. <laughs> yeah. And we started identifying themes and how these, you know, over 1,200 meaning statements would fall into themes. So we distilled this down into 72 elements, uh, intervention elements that fall, that we categorized into four clinical domains, goal, the teaching moment, the context, and the procedural issues. So that was, that was how the taxonomy came to be. And it is very tedious work. So we understand why no one had done that before. And <laughs> there aren't that many taxonomies in our profession. Uh, there's a voice taxonomy. Um, and there is um, a taxonomy for rehab. But those were the only taxonomies that we could identify in terms of um, intervention, rehabilitation. Uh, yeah, so that's that was the origin of it. Wow, that is quite the process. And so I'm sure it was a huge relief in many ways to have it published finally, right? To get it right, out there. Right, well, and you know, with us working uh, across such distances and Elise took a sabbatical and I can't remember what year it was. It might've been like uh, 2012. And she came and uh, stayed with me for a couple of weeks and she and I had the dining room table <laughs> all spread out and working on this and then she'd work on one end and I'd work on the other and we would do this reliability to see would we um, you know we go through each of the 15 interventions and say did you have that element or not and we had it coded as it was required or it was optional oh, or yeah. you know it was absent and then we would check our reliability in coding these 15 interventions uh, to make sure that we had agreement and wow. that there was some validity to these elements. Wow, that is amazing. And I, I think what, you know, I will make sure that um, that taxonomy paper is posted as a resource. Um, and I, I just can't encourage clinicians enough to make sure that they take the time to look through that because you know, we see a lot and I, you know, you and I are both active on social media and participate mm -hmm. in a lot of the SLP groups and discussions. And, you know, I, I don't know that there's um, a lot of common knowledge among clinicians that there are at least 15 different options to choose from when you're right. thinking about treatment approaches. And I think that uh, at the very least, that is a, a very important takeaway from this conversation is that there are so many different ways to treat speech sound disorders mm -hmm. and the decision of, of that uh, the decision of how and how to make that um, that choice and mm -hmm. how to choose a particular approach for a particular child is going to be based on a lot of those 72 different intervention yes. yeah. um, components, right? That there's mm -hmm. so many different reasons that one approach may be really good for one child, but uh -huh. then maybe is not a good approach to choose for another child for a variety of reasons. And some of those are related to the approach itself. Mm -hmm. And some of those are related to the child themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just think it's a it's really fascinating to think about this, and I would love to see more um, effort that is um, kind of taking us out of the drill and kill for right. you know for <laughs> the traditional articulation approach, uh -huh. which has its place, right? Right, so it has its place in the taxonomy and in our clinical practice. But there are so many other options that 
will get us more bang for our buck. Um, and, and, and to kind of capitalize on one of your sayings is, you know, the greatest amount of change in the least uh -huh. amount of time. Right. There is, I mean, I think every clinician can get behind that, you know, that we mm -hmm. want to see a lot of change in a short amount of time and um, choosing the correct treatment approach is one of the biggest um, variables within that right. puzzle. Right, right, right. Well, Lynn, um, I'm going to be mindful of our time together today, but I also really want to talk a little bit about you being ASHA president because I'm so thrilled that you are our 2021 ASHA president and um, especially that you've been able to make time to talk with me about some of this stuff today. I think you and I could both probably go on and on for a oh, while yeah, on, we could. <laughs> <laughs> on the phonology conversation, but um, you know, I am um, mindful of our audience and that uh -huh. there may be parents listening who who aren't clinicians or aren't educators there may be um, clinicians listening who aren't researchers there may be researchers listening who have you know different backgrounds mm -hmm. from speech language pathology so they may not be familiar with what asha is so mm -hmm. can you first just tell us what asha is and then talk a little bit about you know what it's like to be the president of an organization Yes, yeah, happy to. Well, ASHA is the American Speech Language Hearing Association, and it's one of the largest professional associations. It's really one of the largest associations, period. Um, I think maybe the NRA is larger than ASHA. Wow. <laughs> um, we, we just got our membership numbers a few weeks ago, our updated membership numbers. We are now over 218,000 wow. members. Isn't that wow. amazing? It is amazing. Yeah. So ASHA is a large and complex association um, that has so many facets to it, but the, the uh, core uh, mission, and I love this, is making effective communication a human right accessible and achievable for all. And, um, and so that's been the focus for my presidential year is on advocacy and advocating for our professions, advocating for the value that we bring um, to healthcare and to education, but also advocating for our patients. So, um, you know, looking at health disparities with individuals who have communication disabilities and, and knowing that um, speech language pathologists and audiologists play a critical role on healthcare and education teams to be able to help the other care providers or uh, education providers know how to effectively communicate with someone who has a hearing loss or someone who has um, a, a speech or language impairment. So um, like I said, advocacy is, is my focus for this year. Um, and, and so you can focus on the, the professions, you can focus on advocating for the, the people we serve, but I want to break down advocacy into the different aspects. Like there are different types of advocacy. And um, I just got my ASHA leader. I think I get it a little earlier. So others may be getting theirs in the next couple of weeks. Okay. But um, I had my first presidential column and oh, this ASHA leader. So the first um, aspect of advocacy that I focused on is self-advocacy, because mm. I don't think that we can advocate for others if we don't know how to advocate for ourselves. 
Um, and, and by advocating for ourselves to have better work um, conditions, that's going to re, uh, translate into better care for the people we're working with. So if we have better work conditions, we're gonna be able to provide better care. Um, and then, um, so each of my, uh, I get four columns during my presidential year. The next one is going to be uh, public policy advocacy and how do we do that? And I want to make this real functional, like having graphics with tools and tips and how to advocate for yourself, how to do public policy advocacy. And then um, I want to also talk about collaborative advocacy and advocating that speech language pathologists and audiologists need to be on healthcare teams, be on education teams. And, um, and then the, the last aspect of advocacy that I want to address is how do we do advocacy in a responsible way? How do we do advocacy in an effective way? Um, so we've seen a lot with social media lately, and there have been uh, a proliferation of these um, petitions that come. Mm -hmm. and, and that's wonderful to see people getting involved, but just signing a petition and kind of jumping on a bandwagon um, may not be the most effective way. And so one of the things that I want to point out is, you know, asking yourself some questions what is my position on this? Mm -hmm. Have I read all of the information before I've jumped on this bandwagon? Yep. And is it effective? Is it responsible to be um, uh, advocating for a certain position by putting down people who might hold a different position? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not sure that that brings us to a place where we can talk things out to um, to move forward. So I wanted to have one issue devoted specifically to how we advocate in a responsible and effective way. I love that. That is, All of that is music to my ears. I just, I can't wait to read that article and we'll make sure it's linked under the resources to the, the first one that's coming okay. out on self-advocacy. Um, I, I think that is such an important skill for clinicians. I have actually wondered recently if it should be part of our graduate curriculums, curricula, yes. because uh -huh. it is such an important skill. And as SLPs, speech language pathologists, we do have a particular need to to advocate for better practices mm -hmm. just kind of collectively across all settings there tend to be high caseloads um mm -hmm. not great um spaces in order to you know to right. see the children or adults on our caseloads um there are a lot of things that we need to advocate for but then even tying that to your last um, your plans for your last article about mm -hmm. a responsible way to advocate mm -hmm. i think that that kind of cuts across all three of your areas of advocacy, mm -hmm. right? Because exactly. there, there are some, um, some. It's important to have those conversations, but it is difficult to do. And one of the things that I learned from Tiffany, and that we actually did as a part of my training in her lab, was as a lab we read the book Crucial Conversations. Oh, good. And it was. I love that book and it's it's now um, there's now crucial confrontations and there's several other iterations of mm -hmm. um, and, and similar books in the same vein, um, like John Cotter's change model and a lot of those books that are really about mm -hmm. how to invoke change, but 
to your point, in a responsible and effective way. And I think that is a skill in and of itself. And it's exactly. a really important one that clinicians need, but it's, I always kind of think of advocacy, particularly that self-advocacy piece, which I think can be the most challenging. Mm -hmm. um, it's the most difficult for us to advocate for ourselves. Right? Yeah, to, to speak up and say, this is not working, you know, in, in the way that mm -hmm. I need it to. Um, and sometimes mm -hmm. in my experience of speaking up in those ways, I've had building principles kind of react to me of saying like, oh, I had no idea. Sure, we can fix that immediately, you know, yeah. um, uh -huh. and not always, that's not always the case. But in my own experience, I've been surprised by how just kind of raising the issue of, oh, well, why didn't you say something sooner? Of course we can fix that, you know? Right is sometimes the outcome and that's that's very rewarding but through that process it's like a muscle you know so i think uh -huh. of it as you know you just have to build it it's it's difficult to do at first like anything else but you over time can build that skill and get better at having that conversation and and noticing of your you know within your own communication abilities what seems to be lacking why is that so hard mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. so again to your point of thinking about um asking yourself some questions. If that self-advocacy piece seems too hard, why might that be? Is it the confrontation piece? And why is that? You know, really kind of digging into that, uh -huh. I think is an important uh -huh. part of our clinical practice, really. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Well, and so with this theme of advocacy, um, you'll see it's reflected in the 2021 ASHA convention theme, rising united. So I, I just love the word rising. And uh, it's a word that it, it really reflects, we, we rose to the um, needs last year with the pandemic. We, we not only survived, but thrived in many ways. Um, and, and then also how we work together to advocate, to collaborate. Um, and the convention's gonna be in DC, so it's a perfect alignment of the theme and the venue. That is an absolutely perfect place to have a convention with that theme. I just right. I'm so excited to see people in person. And I know there, you know, there's a plan for the, the hybrid, there will be hybrid mm -hmm. portions of the convention, but I am so excited by the possibility of seeing people in person. Oh, <laughs> me too. You know, watch out, Kelly, because if I see you, uh, I may hug you so long that I won't let go. I'll be right there with you. <laughs> And I'm vaccinated, so I'm excited about <laughs> all the hugs to come my way. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, well, before we go, Lynn, I want to honor the tradition that Tiffany has established for her guests by asking you two final questions. Okay. And um, so I'll tell you the, the two questions. The first is, um, what are you working on right now that you're really excited about? And you've got a uh -huh. lot of things to choose from. Um, and the second is, what is your favorite children's book? So for your first question, what are you working on right now that you're really excited about? Well, I'm um, continuing to work with the research team with Sharon McLeod, Elise Baker, and, and Rebecca McCauley um, in the use of the phonological intervention taxonomy as a means for understanding relationships among existing interventions. So specifically, our next step is to complete an exploratory comparison of different interventions that we addressed in the taxonomy using multidimensional scaling that can help us visualize relationships among oh. uh, interventions. So, um, so that's one of the things that, that we're doing. And we're also interested in how the taxonomy can be used for clinical teaching purposes by uh -huh. making these detailed elements, you know, these um, smallest 
elements of intervention explicit, and then also how that can hopefully help in research that the methods includes that specificity so that we know how to implement uh, those approaches. So that's, that's what I'm currently working on with that. Well, that is really exciting. And I'm definitely looking forward to seeing the fruits of that labor because that sounds fascinating. Um, and then our, my final question for you is, what is your favorite children's book? Uh, well, Kelly, it was hard for me to pick just one. And I, and I went back to how I like to incorporate literacy in intervention. And, um, and, and you know how uh, children with significant speech sound disorders are off, often have phonological awareness deficits. Mm -hmm. So one of my favorite, favorite books is The Hungry Thing by Jan Slepian. Yes. Um, and it's this wonderful story that can be used for phonological awareness, skill of rhyming and sound substitution. So this hungry thing comes to town and he speaks a different language yes. than townspeople that no one can understand what he wants to eat, but only this one little boy. So for instance, the hungry thing says schmancakes. Yes. And the little boy try, figures it out by saying schmancakes sounds like pancakes sounds like pancakes to me. And it just, you know, has that um, repetition, uh, you know, gollipops and tickles. And yeah, yes. so it's, it's really wonderful. And then another one, if I could put in another idea. Yeah. Um, our past president, Shari Robertson, the 2019 ASHA president, has uh, dynamic resources, and she has oh, yes. some wonderful books that I have recommended for our clinic that help um, in addressing particular uh, phonological patterns. So capering cows uh, addresses fronting, go by goat addresses final consonant deletion, miles of smiles, Oh, wow. uh, addresses cluster reduction and pants on ants addresses uh, initial consonant deletion. And with each of these books, there are these wonderful fun stories with these contrastive word pairs that are built into the story. And then she includes flashcards at the back of the book. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. I was familiar with her company, but I was not familiar with those books. So I'm going to have to get my hands on those. Those sound yes. amazing. Yes, they are really great. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for your time today. I have loved chatting with you and I, I feel like we barely scratched the surface on some of these topics because I could just talk to you forever about them. But I think um, we have provided the listeners with some really interesting information and some things to talk about. And, and I'll make sure that our resource page for the podcast is well populated with information that we've discussed. And thank you again for taking the time. I really just value it so much. And I think this was a wonderful conversation. It was wonderful for me too. So thank you so much, Kelly. I appreciate it. Thank you. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you, making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.